to introduce um, Michelle Bello, who is formerly here in Oxford at Nuffield College. She's a professor of economics at the University of Edinburgh, and her interests are wide-ranging, but today she's going to talk about eating behaviour and behavioural economics. So, Michelle, thank you. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here, both being back in Oxford, uh, sunny as always, <laughs> and, um, and also I, I, I'm very happy to uh, present in, in an audience that is not, uh, well, except for perhaps one person, but it's not an audience of economists, because I'm sort of really interested to, uh, to hear your feedback and your views on uh, the kind of approach uh, that we have. And um, I think particularly when it comes to uh, eating behavior, um, it is very important that uh, we communicate with each other across disciplines. And I've been really trying to, to, to organize this and get this going, going in Edinburgh. And uh, I would very much like to uh, perhaps expand indeed the network to the, to the UK and so on. So I think... Um, it's a very, very important agenda, and um, there are indeed many uh, people in different disciplines who are currently working on trying to find ways and policies and instruments to, uh, to improve uh, eating patterns in, in developed countries. And what I will present today is how behavioral economists approach uh, the issue. And, um, and I will also present uh, some results of a study we have done to illustrate a bit our uh, approach and indeed uh, show you what, what we have done and what we, we have found. Okay, so I will first talk about, say, perhaps a traditional approach or the economic approach to uh, dietary habits uh, in general. And then I will focus on new insights from behavioral economics and, and psychology. And then I will present the results of a recent uh, randomized controlled trial conducted in primary schools in the UK. So the motivation, I'm sure I don't have to uh, really uh, go at length uh, on this motivation here, but uh, so when you look at nutrition patterns, it seems that they are associated with the most important diseases prevailing in Western countries. And interestingly, you see often quite an emphasis on obesity, but when you look at the evidence and the research that uh, uh, we have, we, it, it seems indeed that nutrition can be linked to uh, pretty much all the big diseases that are prevailing in, in the West at the moment. So cancer, heart diseases are perhaps more obvious, but also dementia, Alzheimer, and so on. So I would sort of, if I would try to summarize why economists are interested in, in diets, um, I would perhaps mention three main reasons. So first you can think, well, obviously eating, if it has an, important, uh, uh, an effect on health, well, that will have uh, an effect on health costs, and, and as economists we, we are interested generally in, in public expenditures and, and how these expenditures are spent. So... The second reason could be that you know, it has an effect on the productive capacity of societies. If people are sick, they are not able to, uh, to work or they're not able to go to school. And that may affect, obviously, how productive we, we might be as a society. And then last is also this question of uh, environmental sustainability. 
that uh, we know that nutrition patterns also have important consequences for uh, the sustainability of the environment and economists are very interested in how you allocate uh, scarce resources and how you uh, produce uh, what you want to produce in, in the most optimal way and so this idea of environmental sustainability is also quite important for us. But also a second uh, sort of uh, class of reasons, I would say, is that we are also really interested in developing models of decision-making in general. Okay? And so we always try to develop some sort of formal models of, of choices. And, and particularly here, and, and that, will be, that has been uh, the focus of behavioral economics, we try, we try to understand why people may make suboptimal choices. And by suboptimal, uh, what I will, will really mean here is that it's not, it's not choices in the sense that people really want to make. And I'll give an example uh, when I come to that later. And if we think about how these models have evolved and how behavioral economics came about, it's, it is really the result of interdisciplinary work. Uh, it has really been at the core of the development of these new models. Um, and then the last, perhaps, uh, class of reasons why economists get into this is that, in, in general, well, there are a number of economists who just look at, say, cost and benefits of different policies. And, of course, here, when it comes to diet and health, it's also the kind of exercise that we like to do to sort of understand, well, what are the costs and benefits associated with different policies and can, how, can, how do we compare them. Um, now, so for policy relevance, obviously, if you want to say something about cost and benefits, if you want to understand how policies might work, uh, it's obviously key to understand the process driving dietary choices in the first place. Um, and so again, as, as economists, when we think about, well, what are the policy instruments that are available, we would put them in three different classes again. So we would think about say, giving people information, so trying to influence, indeed, their uh, beliefs. For example, this idea of five-a-day campaign. Or you could try to play around prices, meaning prices in a, in a broad sense. So, for example, think about uh, the fat tax that has been introduced in Denmark, or subsidies to uh, fruit and vegetables, or setting a minimum price of alcohol, as they are currently need considering in Scotland. Um, and the last class of instruments you could have is, is to regulate. So that means really, in some sense, restrict the choice set that people have, imposing constraints, reduce, uh, restrict, for example, advertising, uh, forbidding certain items. This is the example where the policymaker is really getting into, uh, yeah, sort of regulating what people see, what's in the choice set, and so on. So. Just to perhaps introduce briefly, I'm sure that many of you have come across you know, economic approaches before, but just want to, to be a bit more general at this stage. So eventually what, what we, we care about is, is what makes people be better off. So we want to have a, a sort of a formal way of approaching, well, how do people, how do we describe what makes people better off? Well, usually we use what is called a utility function, meaning we want to sort of have some uh, abstract, uh, abstract model of how uh, people, uh, what people, uh, that describes what people care about. And this utility function just tells you, well, my well-being depends on a number of things. And 
the number of things can actually vary depending on, on what we are interested in studying, really. So uh, if you think about I'm interested in, in studying, well, how people decide what to eat, well, it seems that in my utility function, I probably want to take into account things like taste and enjoyment of food, so the immediate benefits that I get from eating the food. But also, probably, I care as well about the consequences in terms of health, the long-term uh, effects of the choices I, I make. But you could also be quite broad in, in the sense that you could also think about, well, I care about uh, conforming to uh, my environment. I care about um, eating the same thing as other people in my environment are eating. So, uh, in a sense, it's quite it's quite flexible when you, you think about what can you put in a utility function. But the point is that you want to have to think about what are the most relevant variables that may affect uh, what people uh, care about. So the basic idea is if I would say, well, I'm going to think about my utility depends on, on food and then uh, it will be basically equal to my immediate enjoyment of uh, the food plus some uh, future health status. And so, for example, you could think, well, if I just have a simple choice between eating junk food or healthy food at a time t, so let's say today I have to choose between junk food and healthy food, well, I may get a difference in this immediate benefit that I call B, so uh, this may be more tasty to me to eat a burger today than to eat something healthy, but tomorrow uh, I will then have uh, some some health status that gives me some uh, utility or that determines my well-being. And so presumably you'd imagine that indeed uh, if you eat junk food, you're more likely to, say, have a bad health status uh, and so uh, you are going to be uh, worse off in the second period uh, than you are if you, are, you have eaten healthy food. But the point is that you can see that with this simple approach, you can see that it can be perfectly the rational decision for somebody to eat junk food if he thinks, well, I'm fine. And actually, you hear sometimes people saying that I don't care if I'm dying and I'm 50. You know, I just want to enjoy my life now. And that's basically the simple uh, way of uh, representing this. Now, the delta tells you, and that's going to be quite interesting, this delta tells you, well, how much do I care about what's happening to me in the future? And the idea is that if I discount a lot what's happening in the future, uh, then of course this, this effect on health might have less influence on my choice today because I don't really care whether I'm sick or, or not uh, when I'm 50, then I'm sort of um, I'm maybe uh, making a different choice. Now, t taking this and, and perhaps trying to push it a bit further, so how do we get to why do people uh, eat junk food? So, so first you can think about, well, what is the decision process at work? So you can think about, well, we would think about, well, it's a, this idea of I'm, I'm going to try to choose the option that makes me better off. So in a sense, I'm comparing the values of the different options. And that's a conscious process. Okay, So I'm sort of really deciding this is actually what I want to do. Or, and this is something that has also been quite prominent in other disciplines, is to think about, well, this is, a, uh, this is really driven by a habitual process. I'm actually not thinking much when I'm choosing what I'm going to eat. And this is a routine, and, and I'm, not, uh, I'm not thinking much. So that could be, so that's the first thing to think about, what is the decision process of work? So suppose it's a co conscious process, 
then what we think is that people would want to be as well off as possible, so would choose the option that makes them uh, better off. But of course, they're also potentially constrained by things like, well, their budget, their pr the prices, the choice set, so if I want to eat healthy food, I actually have to have healthy food available, I have to be able to afford it, and so on. Um, and the other thing that might be playing a role in this is that you may not have all the information available about the consequences of their choices. And this is what I think the policy maker, makers have been thinking that we are lacking, is that we're lacking somehow this information about all the health implications of the choices we make. Um, and so the way we would rewrite this is to think, well, actually, now I'm writing this expectation uh, rather than just uh, the B and the H, saying, well, I'm actually having some belief about what this benefit will be, and I'm having some belief about what will happen to me if I eat uh, junk food. Okay? And then the idea is that you would then have a budget set, so you have to be able to afford the food you want to eat, and there are prices going on. Now, why is it useful to, uh, to put it in that way? Is because then you can understand at least and, and this is where I, th I think there's always a bit of confusion in, in uh, how economists perceive rationality. So I'll try to explain a bit how, well, we would see uh, rational decisions in this context, is that you could, do, you could eat a lot of junk food for lots of reasons that we would see as, say, rational. Like, for example, it tastes better, and I don't care so much about my uh, future health, then I would eat junk food, and that's my... It's a very rational reason. I don't care too much about uh, future health, so it could be that the difference between uh, how much I value being in good health and how much I value being in bad health is not that large. Or because it's relatively cheap, so of course if you have prices that uh, are, you know, it's very cheap to buy a burger in comparison to some healthy food, then that may also explain why I'm choosing to, uh, to eat junk food. Um, it could also be that you make, say, what we call rational mistakes. So in a sense, for example, it could be that you are misinformed. So for example, you completely underestimate the effects of your choice on, on your future health. You think, well, this is not going to be that bad, for example. And that means that, you know, given the information I have, I'm making the choice that you know, makes sense. Uh, or it could be that, you know, because we have limited cognitive resources, we can't really uh, digest all this. Uh, we could make inferences from the choice architecture what the best choice is. And this people really believe is important when you have, say, for example, a default or you have something that is really quite salient. It's not that, you know, I'm stupid in a sense. I'm sort of thinking, well, there is a reason why this default is there. It's probably because it's better for most people. So... I don't have the time to think about this, so I'm just picking that. Okay. Um, and and if you do, if you see this, then then it's easy to use this framework in a sense to think about how instruments would work and how they could affect the decisions to buy junk food or not. Now, so so I'll give you an, an example of these policies in a moment. But in addition to that, what uh, really has uh, taken off in the last uh, few years, I don't know how to remove this, perhaps just say, um, is to, uh, to actually focus our attention also to some, some quite intriguing what we call behavioral anomalies. It's not that it's really 
uh, rare. It's not rare at all, actually, and that's why economists have really started uh, paying attention. But it's something that is not within the framework I've just described uh, before. And uh, particularly what we are concerned about is, is these inconsistencies in behavior. So something that, uh, what we will say, cannot be rationalized with stable preferences. And to, get, to really get uh, straight into what I mean with this is that there is a lot of evidence in psychology and economics that shows that people are inconsistent in intertemporal behavior. And I'll give you the classic example, is that if I give you a choice between 50 pounds today or 51 pounds um, in a year, then most people will choose 50 pounds today, okay? But if I give you a choice between 50 pounds in 30 years or 51 pounds in 31 years, then most people will choose 51 pounds in 31 years because so far away they don't really. And, and that actually doesn't fit with the model that I've just described uh, before because what, what you have is that your discount rate, in a sense, changes over time. And what, uh, the reason why it's important is, is for the following reason. is that imagine you are now today deciding, well, I'm going to you know, think about what I'm going to do in the next uh, few months, and I'm going to go on a diet, and today is the last day where I'm going to have these chips. And you know, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, this is what I want to do. Well... So you would imagine if indeed I'm sort of tomorrow, then I would stick to that plan because yesterday was the optimal plan. But what, what, what seems to be happening is that tomorrow, you're actually not thinking that anymore. You're thinking, well, no, today I actually would like the chips again. <laughs> and that is inconsistent. So this is really what we then worry about, about this is really inconsistent, you are not uh, sticking to what you thought was optimal yesterday, where there's really nothing changed, uh, except that it's tomorrow now. So, uh, and and it, interestingly, these this anomalies are present in a lot of uh, decisions that are similar in nature, in the sense that they are all intertemporal. So things about, you know, education, or think about monetary investments. People have looked at different domains, and it seems that we do make these inconsistencies quite often. And so that is interesting. And uh, so what we think about, well, then this is this delta, this discount rate is actually not going to be constant over time, but people have come up with you know, other uh, ideas of how this could look like. And in particular, there's this idea of hyperbolic discounting. So basically, this idea of the discount rate becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, now, for policy implications, what does that mean? It means that, and, and this is the psycholo psychologist jargon here, is that this leads to what we call immediate, this tendency to go for immediate gratification. So you really are putting a lot of weight on what you see you know, today. And so the, the idea of this benefit that you have today from eating the burger is really uh, overweight, and, and you don't realize that tomorrow you will again overweight the, uh, the, the benefit of eating the, the burger. So what we thought is that, well, in, in that context, in terms of policy, what you want to do is perhaps try to change the incentives that you eat, you have to eat uh, healthy food today, really provide immediate benefits to eat healthy food today. So not necessarily convince people that you know, in 20 years they will be much healthier, but really think, I'm going to you know, subsidize healthy food, I'm going to tax 
uh, junk food, for example. Or regulation, you may want to actually exclude this junk food, make sure that people cannot access this, this junk food today because they, they, it's not what they want to do, it's not what they would like to do in a long-term plan. Then um, the other idea is to, uh, the other behavioral consideration that we uh, have introduced and that we think is quite important is this idea of addiction and taste formation. So again, in the, in the first sort of approach I presented, you just, your utility or your well-being depends on you know, what you do, you get this benefit, you get this future uh, benefits, but in a sense, Tomorrow, if I'm deciding whether to choose to eat a burger or not, it doesn't matter what I have done yesterday. And that doesn't really fit with a lot of literature in nutrition and also in psychology that shows that people tend to become, their tastes tend to become biased towards what they have been exposed to in the past. So the more thing, you know, actually the more vegetables also you eat, the more likely you are going to like these vegetables. And that means that, say, your, your utility at some point will depend on what you have done in, in the past. Okay, so that complicates actually, for economists, it's, it's quite difficult to deal with these things because that complicates a bit welfare analysis because it means your preference might be changing over time and so I'm not quite sure, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to say what's better for you because your preferences are changing over time. But um, it's also an important insight for policy because then you can think, well, if that is the case, then you probably want to intervene early on in life when tastes are still forming and so on. Okay, so then the last perhaps sort of uh, uh, thing I want to talk about is uh, this idea of automated response. So right now I focused all these, these ideas and mechanisms were really within this context of somehow I'm doing this conscious-based choice. But we know that uh, there's also a lot of evidence that seems to indicate that people are not thinking much about the choice they, they, they make. So this idea of habitual pattern or routine choices are not conscious and so on. Um, so this idea, oh sorry, of a habitual pat pattern is very much linked to this idea that yes, maybe I'm actually, you know, I'm, I'm, I've eaten things in the past and I'm going to continue eating them because I value them more and so you can get that because of addiction and taste formation as well. But it could also be that the idea would be simply, I'm going, well I remember when I was in at Nuffield, you know, you just go, you know, to the to the canteen, and and the menus change, but not that much. So I've optimized once, you know, what I like to eat, and then I just go for the same over and over again. I'm not every time spending ten minutes figuring out what is the best thing uh, to eat. Okay, and that makes a lot of sense as well in terms of this is not something it's something that that makes a lot of sense in the context where you think that people have limited cognitive resources. You have learned this mapping between cues and rewards, and and you just want to uh, to optimize only once. Uh, but then again, if you think about this, then it's quite important to think about how prices and information campaigns may work because if that is really at work, then information campaigns and changes in prices might not be really effective because you don't pay attention to these things. You really, you know, you're just doing the choices that you make and you don't really uh, pay attention to that. So this is just to basically uh, give you a rough idea of how we would see things, but when we look at what has happened in terms of policy, and again I'm sure you are probably even better informed than I am, but 
what we see is that information campaigns, for example, have been quite successful at informing people, but not so much at affecting their choices. So it seems that everybody knows what five a day means, uh, and that they should eat fried food and vegetables a day, but they don't do it. Okay? Uh, we also see that other policies like taxes on unhealthy food that was introduced in Denmark, it seems to be quite problematic because it's a bit different from cigarettes. When you think about you know, a cigarette, it's clear, you know, you have a cigarette. each cigarette is going to be bad for you. For diet, it's a little bit more tricky. You need a balanced diet, you need various things. It's, it would be wrong to say that you, know, you can't have any fat, for example. And so, uh, so it's a bit more difficult to design a system that would work. And then at the same time, what we have seen is that there is an increasing popularity of what I would call behavioral instruments that somehow try to play on these anomalies that I've just described. So the fact that you go for immediate things, the fact that you don't pay attention and so on. So, uh, for example, the idea of the smart canteens or commitment contracts is also something interesting. There's a website actually called Stick, which, where you can uh, say, well, this is what I want to do, this is my goal. And um, if I don't do it, here is the name of a friend, and I will give him you know, a certain amount of money, and you have to prepay the amount of money. <laughs> it's quite interesting. But this again solves this problem that I was talking about, that you change your mind to, uh, to, from uh, what you want today in comparison. Tomorrow you have a different, uh, different view of what you should be doing today than yesterday. And that's, these commitment uh, devices are helpful for that. Okay, so but... What we still do not know and where I think there's a lot of uh, work to be done is, well, so there's, I think, quite a good consensus that di diet follows an habitual pattern, but we don't really know how and when habits form. Do they form in utero, during childhood? How malleable are they? How, how much can you influence them? And also, so if you think about intervening early, which, which is what my work has been focusing on, is well, how, how effective is it? How can you intervene? Because it's, always ve it's very, very difficult to intervene and, and target uh, children. So how should you implement this via nurseries, via schools, via families, local communities? There's lots of different ways to proceed. And I think lots of people are doing a lot of research at the moment, which is very good, but I think we have not quite gotten there yet on trying to understand how we can best intervene. Um, so... I've, yeah, I think I'll jump to this for the sake of time. So um, I will present a study that, uh, the results of a study that I've recently uh, finished with uh, Jonathan James and Patrick Nolan, who are both uh, economists as well. But what we thought is that given what we know and given the new insights, well, the insights from psychology and, and the way behavioral economics has now developed. It seemed that it made sense to perhaps try to think about an intervention, first of all, that would target uh, children, uh, and uh, that would try somehow to increase their, their exposure to, uh, well, in this particular case, fruit and vegetables, because we think it's quite you know, easy to identify for them what fruit and vegetables are, so you don't really have this discussion of whether your pizza is really healthy or not. So we just want to have something that is clearly healthy. And what we want to do is play around this idea that they are definitely, um, well, 
again, there is evidence showing that they are very, very subject to this bias I described earlier, this immediate gratification bias. You know, tomorrow, the concept of tomorrow for children is very you know, difficult to grasp anyway. Uh, but so you really think the main determinant of what they eat today seems to be really how good it is and whether it tastes good. And if that is the case, what you want to do is perhaps try to shift how attractive each option is uh, today. So that what we would like to do is to expose them, by doing this, expose them for a little while to, say, fruit and vegetables in such a way that their taste might then be uh, changing towards uh, these, these healthy items. And that when you remove this, uh, these incentives, then uh, they continue eating fruit and vegetables. But this is a bit uh, a tricky thing to do. So um, there's some, some evidence, actually, that temporary incentives may affect habitual choices among adults. So people have tried to do this paying. In that case, it was really paying people to go to the gym <laughs> and then for a little while and then looking at what happens when you just stop paying them. And they found that, yes, people do not to the same extent, but they do more, go more to the gym after than, than before. But when it comes to children, it's, it's really uh, tricky whether you can sort of think about doing the same. Um, in the literature in nutrition, it's, it's clear that it's, a very, very, it's very controversial, the idea of encouraging uh, children to eat certain things with things like stickers or incentives because you think, well, they may think, well, that must not be very good if you, you, know, you, give me a <laughs> you promise me a sticker or something to, to eat this. But on the other hand, I see a lot of parents who are using incentives all the time to get their children to eat things, and, and, and particularly sometimes in a, in a weird way that they say, you know, you're going to have your chocolate if you eat your, <laughs> uh, your broccoli first. And uh, so incentives are clearly around and are used both by parents and, and by uh, schools. Um, but, and also there is actually some encouraging evidence from uh, programs that have an incentive component. So there's something called the Food Youths Program that is quite a, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's, it's basically a, a quite a big program designed for schools where um, there are little heroes who eat, uh, who eat spinach and broccoli and they're very cool. Uh, and at the same time, this is, join, uh, this is coupled with um, giving incentives to uh, children to try different uh, foods. And, and they have had some encouraging results. The problem is that when we talk to the schools is that they say this is very time consuming and it's very costly and we, we can't do this. So, uh, uh, so some schools do it, but it's definitely a program that is quite costly. So we wanted to do something that was just trying to focus perhaps on this incentive part. Um, and so the question is, can these temporary incentives have long-lasting effects on dietary habits? And also, what types of incentives are most effective? So if you think about you know, start, starting to give incentives to uh, children, there are many, many ways you could go about it. So of course, we won't be able to test uh, a lot here, but we will look at two different incentive schemes that we thought were most relevant. So what we did is we did a, a randomized controlled trial in, in 31 primary schools in the UK and we documented the effects of introducing temporary incentives for choosing fruit and vegetables at lunch. So it's going to be very focused and very uh, simple in a sense what, you, what we want to do. It's, we just want to say you go through the canteen, if you choose a fruit or a vegetable you get a little sticker basically. 
Um, so the idea is it's a very low cost and low resource intensive scheme and what we do is we reward choice. So we don't reward whether they actually eat it, first of all because it's very complicated to do that and the dinner ladies told us that they didn't want to be the next you know, policing the children uh, around. So, um, so the idea would be to, to reward choice with the idea that once you have it on your plate, you know, you might be more likely to, uh, to eat it. But interestingly, the, the choice is already quite high. So what you will see happening is that now, not only they choose it, but they also get a sticker for it, and perhaps they will feel more like, now I have to eat it because I actually got a reward for that. Um, we have two, two age groups, year two and year five. And what we document is the effect of introducing incentives in the short run, so immediately when they are exposed to the incentives. They are exposed to the incentives for four weeks, and then we remove the incentives, we monitor immediately what happens, and then we went back six months later. And then we compared two different incentive schemes, one that was a competition, so uh, where basically they collect a number of stickers, and at the end of the week we allocate them in different groups of four, and that's the one, the, the child who has collected most stickers then get an additional little reward. And these additional rewards are things like yo-yo and a pencil and whatever. And the other one is they just collect a number of stickers and if at the end of the week they have four or more, then they get an additional reward. And the reason why we thought that might be interesting is that we know from the literature on health interventions in schools is that it's very difficult to get boys on board. Boys don't really respond much to health interventions. And we saw that, again, through evidence that is coming from other domains um, in, in economics, but also in psychology, that it seems that boys are more interested when there is a competition. So when something is competitive, then uh, they are more engaged. And we thought, well, maybe we could use that <laughs> to, uh, to get the boys interested in eating fruit and vegetables. But it's also clear that it will work, because often this competition works because boys think they are better at uh, the task, and that's why they, they, they compete. Uh, it's also very short, the, the kind of uh, task they are involved with in, in the evidence we have. So here we're considering a much longer time period and, and girls are in principle say better at the task in the sense that everybody knows that girls eat more fruit and vegetables to start with. Um, so we reward children for choosing fruit and vegetables at lunch for a period of four weeks. Um, we are going to look at choice and consumption of fruit and vegetables and then we have these different groups. We did the randomization at the school level, meaning that we had uh, about 10 schools in the control, on control, 10 schools in the treatment, and, and 10 schools well, school in each uh, treatment, basically. And so we have 640 children in the data at the end, because every time we had one class in each uh, year group. These are the rewards. So the stickers are uh, these healthy choice stickers that we had designed for us, but actually there's a whole market of stickers, so there are stickers that look pretty similar that are already on the market. Um, and then the weekly rewards were additional little things like yo-yos, pencils, and so on. So the time frame of the experiment was there were basically four weeks of intervention in the treatment schools, and then we monitored one week before in week one, and one week after in week six, and then we also went six months later, and in control schools, we just did the monitoring for the whole time. That's to make sure that people, that children don't change their behaviors because they are monitored. 
I'll go to the results because otherwise I won't have time to present the results. But so what we are doing in the analysis, which is basically a, a quantitative empirical analysis, so we haven't really conducted in-depth interviews. We just have some, say, anecdotal feedback and so on. But most of our analysis is based on, on uh, well, quantitative uh, analysis. And so what we look is whether what happens to whether they choose a fruit or vegetable at lunch, whether they tried, meaning that they actually ate some of it, and, and we have this measure that they ate less than half, and if they ate more than half, then uh, we will also call that, well, basically eat it, uh, because there are very few children who actually finish everything, but um, we, we saw this classification was useful. Um, and then we distinguish by gender, cohort, and school meal status. Um, and then we look at long-term effects. Actually, all the focus, so in the paper we have much more tables, but here I'm just going to present the results uh, on the children who at the beginning were not at the max, because of course, you know, if you're already eating uh, five fruit and veg a, a week, then uh, you're not uh, going to be uh, able to improve that. Uh, but here, uh, we are, so we are, we are focusing on those who are at four or, or less in the, in the first week. So this is a big table, but uh, this is basically showing you every time how um, they, uh, the, 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 the group compares to the first week in the control schools. Okay, so if we look at um, the competition schools in uh, week two, that will be the first row, we find that for example, they are 17% more likely to choose a fruit and vegetable in comparison to the control schools and in, 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 in comparison to week one. Um, so well, the first thing that you see, so this is actually comparing girls and boys and for the different variables. And what we see is that overall the competition seems to work better in a sense that you can see that the effects we find, the significant effects we find, seem to last up to week five uh, for trying and eating more than, uh, than half, at least for uh, trying for sure, but for uh, eating more than half it lasts a bit longer than the, than the piece rate. And so the first idea is to say, well, it seems that competition works better than uh, the peace rate, both for girls and for boys, actually. So it's not the case that we see that uh, boys respond more than girls, but at least they respond, which is you know, good news for, for us. But. Now, this is comparing the young children and the older children. And again, that shows, I mean, it showed us, actually, that it was important to compare uh, different incentive schemes. Because what you see is that the peace rate scheme or has this negative coefficient, meaning that actually it's not, when you look at what happened, it's not necessarily that they ate worse, but it's more like in comparison to the control group that was improving also a little bit over time, they did not improve. So it seems to have worked adversely on, on the year two. And that is, uh, I think, useful to know that, yes, it's not incentivizing per se, is not necessarily a good idea, certainly not for young children, for the competition, on the other hand, does seem to have uh, positive effects on these young groups. For the older group, that seems to be going the other way around, but it seems to be particularly the case that both incentive schemes work and work quite well. If you look at the peace rate, the effects that we find that you increase the probability that you try by 40 percentage points, it's enormous. It's an enormous effect. 
Okay, and then the last thing that we do is compare the disadvantaged children to uh, the less disadvantaged children. So we have uh, the no FSM, so if they have no free school meal and if they have free school meals. And you, what you can see is, again, uh, typically in these health interventions, you find that uh, children who are eligible for free school meals tend to respond less to health interventions. It's much harder to get them to uh, eat healthily. And there again, we were quite pleased to see that uh, there is some positive effect, uh, particularly again for the competition. Uh, we see that in we see that in both groups. But if you look at the effects, the effects seem to be larger among the, the free school meal children. Okay. So um, the last thing I want to say, perhaps in, in the minute I have, is uh, something about habit formation. So of course we want to see what happens in. Uh, in one week after and then uh, six months later. But it only makes sense to think about those who responded in the first place. <coughs> so of course what I want to see is whether those who did in increase their consumption during the intervention, whether that actually lasts um, later in, in once we remove the incentives. And so this tells you, this is basically the correlation, if you want, between your uh, consumption in, um, during the intervention and your consumption after the, uh, the intervention using the fact that we only look at those who have increased their consumption through the interventions. And if it was really a habit, you know, like a perfect habit, like I'm not changing my behavior, I've increased and I stick to it, this, all these coefficients would be one. If there is no effect at all, so I'm just going back to what it was before, it would be zero. Okay, so I'm just here giving you a sense that yes, we are not doing too bad. It seems in week six that people that lots of these coefficients are between zero and one. Some are even higher than one, so meaning that I'm overshooting, I'm continuing, and I'm even increasing further what I was doing before. Which, if you look at the year two, it's not such good news because these were the ones who were actually uh, uh, <coughs> affected adversely. So that means that they really do stick to not eating not increasing their consumption. But when you look at six months later, there it's a little bit less encouraging. The only encouraging result that we have, really, is for the free school meal children. So for them, it seems that we do find evidence of long-lasting effects of this uh, intervention. So in a nutshell, what we find is um, we have done this, this experiment trying to develop something around what we know uh, um, in, in behavioral economics about the determinants of uh, dietary choices and so on, trying to use incentives to encourage food and vegetable consumption. We have mixed results, so incentives work sometimes adversely. Overall, and that's what we will, I think, tell the schools and the local authorities is that it seems you have to be very careful with what type of incentives you actually choose to implement. Competitive incentives are most effective overall. We find little evidence of habit formation, so perhaps you know the intervention was too short, four weeks is what we felt we could do because it's a lot asking from the schools to, to do this on a daily basis. But maybe, so it was maybe too short. Except, and, and notably, so this we want to stress for free school meal uh, children. Thank you very much.